Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 673 of the Survival Podcast. It's Friday, May 27th, 2011, and it's Friday, Friday, Friday. And what does that mean? That means that we are not just on a weekend cusp, we are on a Memorial Day weekend cusp, and uh, I'll be taking a day or two off next week. I'm not sure exactly what I'm going to do with that, uh, with the holiday. The wife's going down to Arlington, so uh, what I'm actually going to be doing is getting a lot of things done. I just know that there won't be a lot of people listening on the Monday, and uh, we'll probably take Monday off and be back Tuesday next week. But the reason I love Friday isn't just because it's a weekend, because honestly, I'm not that enthralled with weekends anymore now that I do what I love every day, which is talk to you guys. Um, what I really love about Fridays is that we get to hear from you, because everybody that picks up the phone and mashes some numbers, and those numbers are 866-65-THINK, again, 866-65-THINK, uh, eventually we'll end up on the air. I don't say everybody, but most people that do. I try to get all calls on. I got some backlog now. I got a vacation coming up, so we'll do a couple of these uh, extra to uh, to fill out my vacation time, along with a huge interview blitz. Uh, I got some great interviewees coming up. Took care of two interviews yesterday. Got another interview today. I'll be making an announcement about who these interviews are going to be with uh, next week. So you got and knowing you know when I'm going to be gone and things like that. So I've got some really cool stuff. So even though I'm going to be gone. I'm working double time right now so that when I'm gone, I'm not that missed. Uh, I like being missed, but I don't like you guys missing shows. Before we get into today's show, let's go ahead and take care of our housekeeping. i got some special announcements going on as well today. First, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one is ShelfReliance.com. Notice I said Shelf, not Self, but Shelf Reliance, like a shelf you put things on. Because Shelf Reliance specializes in two things, long-term storage food and innovative long-term food storage systems, shelving systems that allow you to eat what you store and store what you eat and make sure food never goes to waste. Because every time you add new canned food to their systems, it automatically goes to the back, and every time as you pull from the front, the food automatically rotates itself. It's an awesome system. It's an awesome idea. It works really great. They're built like a tank. They have great big systems for the serious prepper with spatial you know, ability to use it all. And they have little simple systems like the consolidator systems as well. So check them out. Check out their Thrive Long-Term Storage brand of food. Uh, awesome, awesome selection. Great service, great shipping, and the selection is the big thing, folks. You'll find stuff that will keep for 10 years that not only will keep like a lot of other brands, but you just won't find with other brands. Next up today, I want you guys to check out silverandgoldshop.com. That's the wonderful Mary Beth Maidmont, and wonderful is the word that I've heard you guys use from her many times. Now, what would make the audience say something like, Mary Beth is wonderful. When all you're doing is buying some silver or some gold from her and she's shipping it to you, you would expect that pretty much you would expect the same level of service from anybody in the metals industry. It's a very well-run industry. Pretty much when you go to any reputable website and order silver or gold, it's going to show up and it's going to show up on time. Uh, and it's going to show up and be exactly what you ordered. You don't stick around long in that industry if you don't do that. How do you bring personal service to it? One example, and I've heard from several people that said this. I ordered from Mary Beth in the morning. During the day of my order, the price of silver went down. At about 5 o'clock, I got a shipping notice that my order was shipping the same day. But since the silver price fell, I was getting a refund for the difference. Now, I don't know if that always happens. I don't know if that's always possible. I think she does that when it's a significant drop and she has time because you're actually getting ready to fulfill the order and now we look at the spot price. But the fact that it's done at all is just simply unheard of. That's a, that is a company that cares about doing the right thing for its customer because the order's already been placed. The payment has already been made. And yet the person is given a refund for the difference. I've never even heard of that. That's the kind of person you're... Now, I'm not saying it's going to happen to you. I'm just saying that's the kind of person you're dealing with when you're dealing with silverandgoldshop.com, and that's why we're glad that they are a sponsor of the show. Next up today, 
I want you guys to check out the gear shop. Two things I want you to look out uh, the next time you're at the gear shop. The Victor Knox flashlights with the TSP logo, those are a discontinued item from Victor Knox. They're amazing. I'm going to do a review for you. Uh, I don't know if I'll do it before we get out of here on vacation. I'll do it when I get back. But just trust me. Bright as the day is long. Built like a tank, great little TSP logo on the top of them, affordably priced. The other thing I want you to look at are the TSP uh, bottle openers that are shaped like a dog tag with our logo on one side, show name on the other, goes right onto your key ring. They're a few bucks. If nothing else, pick one of those up. Maybe pick one of the lanyards or some of the geocache coins or something like that up too. But check out the gear shop. Uh, last big announcement. Not this week, not next week, but starting the 6th of June and running through the... Uh, The 17th, and this is while I'm on vacation. This is what I've done for you guys while I'm on vacation. Ready-Made Resources is going to be running a contest to give away an AR-7 survival rifle. And this will be the first of many. I want you guys to be ready for that. I'll be giving you more details about it over the next week and a half until we launch that contest. But somebody out there is going to win a free rifle. You're going to have to have that shipped to your FFL. Big thing, if we get 2,500 of you guys to try to win... I get one, too, so I want to be ready for this one. Just wanted to throw that out there today. I mentioned it on Facebook yesterday. Stay with us on Facebook and Twitter, and you'll find out about things like this sometimes even before they're on the show. Last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Remember, active duty, prior service, military. Email me before you join. I'll give you a special discount code just for military members. Now let's get into the main topic of today's show, which, of course, is your calls, your questions, your commentary, your comments to 866-65-THINK. Let's go ahead and take that first call today. Hey, Jack. This is Adam from Boston. I just want to give you a quick story about water shortages. We had... Uh Uh, a water main break here in Mass. Uh, I think it was last spring, and um, I was at uh, Friendly's. It's like a, you know, like a Arby's or something like that. I don't know if you have them where you're at. But uh, my sons and I, they're little kids. We were ordering dinner, and uh, the lady said, "Well, you know, you can't have ice with anything." And we said, "Why?" And she said, "Well, there's something wrong with the water." And I said, "Well, doesn't everything have water on it?" And she's like. Um, well, you know, it's, uh, I think so. And I'm like, well, why, why could we order anything from you then? And there were people around me who were listening, and they were looking at me like I was some kind of weirdo. And I was like, so basically you're telling me that the water's contaminated. You don't know what it is, but you still want to serve me dinner. And so anyway, I took the kids out uh, back home. And uh, on the way, I thought, you know, uh, I've got some water stored, but while I'm here, I'm going to go ahead and pick up some additional uh, jugs. I'll tell you what. I picked up uh, a few cases of water and some five-gallon jugs just for just for extra. And uh, the next day, um, every single source of water in about a 25-mile radius of where I live was sold out. Every single store had signs saying on the front, "If you're looking for water, we don't have any." And this isn't this isn't a pretty highly populated area, so maybe that's why. But just to show you how quickly uh, a small water scare within 24 hours can clear out water. Um, and yeah, it was the same thing. You can boil your water, but everybody was uh, everybody was panicking very quickly. Anyway, just thought I'd tell you that story. Thanks. Well, it's an interesting story, and we keep hearing more and more stories like this. Water main breaks, different types of contamination. There's a couple things here. One, this is why I think you should have a good water filtration system in your home. Let me be blunt and brutally honest with a dose of reality here. By the time the government or township or whatever says, there is now a boil water advisory in effect for the next 48 hours. By the time you get that advisory, the contaminated water is already in the pipes and coming out of faucets somewhere. So in a lot of these instances, it's purely precautionary. They don't really know there's an infection. They just know there was a break, there was a loss in pressure, there could be some backflow. We don't know. So a lot of times people get out lucky, and even though it takes a while before the formal announcement comes to boil your water, no one gets sick, it certainly can happen. So it's an additional safeguard. Next up, I completely agree with the caller. You need to have water stored. Even, you know, 15, 20 gallons at less than a dollar a gallon with plain old stupid bottled water from the store stacked in a closet. And every once in a while you go pull a jug out of the front, buy a new jug and stick it in the back. We'll do wonders for you. And it's not because the water is going to go bad. It just kind of gets an off taste after it's been stored for a while. Um, it will, the shelves will empty quick of any commodity the second that people become panicked about it. And that's a reality as well. A little bit in defense of the staff at Friendly's. There might be water in just about everything they serve, but if what they're serving is cooked, it's been boiled, and it should be safe. So um, now salad, washing salad and things like that, you know, that could leave some residue on there, and that could be a concern. 
but I, I would think that anything cooked would probably have been okay. The little poor girl you jumped didn't probably know how to answer that. But stories like this are something I'm always interested in hearing from the audience. If you're somewhere where something like this happens with food, water, I don't care what it is, and you see the shelves empty, give us a call at 866-65-THINK. Share exactly what happened. Don't add anything to it. Don't take anything away. Share the facts, just the facts, like they used to say in the old show Dragnet. And uh, I think it was Dragnet. It was either Dragnet or Hawaii Five-O, the original ones. Just the facts, uh, man. So uh, give us that. Give us a straight story, because I think the more we share... It really happened, and here's what it looked like with people, the better. Speaking of that, uh, Brandon from Bella Ministries, who I had on the show in the past, who went down to Haiti, called me yesterday. He's supposed to be calling the Think Line and leaving us a message that I can play for you. And uh, he's off to Joplin now to do some relief work there. And they, those guys really need it. But I want to share one thing that uh, Brandon, uh, again, from Bella Ministries, who is a small nonprofit that gone, has gone to Haiti. Some of you may or may not have heard that interview. Um, but I asked you guys to support his charity, and I think TSP members gave over $7,000 was the number he gave me. Uh, they went to Haiti, and unlike the, 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 uh, the, the American Red Cross, or was the Salvation Army, they took in hundreds of millions, and we can't find much that they've done there at all. Your $7,000 built a well and a water filtration system uh, for people in Haiti. And he said that has literally saved hundreds if not thousands of lives. So thank you to you guys for that. That's how precious water is. And we need to remember that what happens in a third world place like Haiti, when it happens here, yes, we fix it faster, but it doesn't mean it can't happen in the first place. And we need to be prepared. Caller, thank you so much, so much for sharing that story because it's something that really happened and that resonates with people. Let's go ahead and take the next call. Hi, Jack. This is Susie again. Um, I have a gruesome question. Uh, and uh, it hits the fan scenario. How do we deal with handling the bodies of the dead? I mean, after all, it's quite different from handling a burial of a pet or a small animal. Um, also, is there a different, much of a difference of handling the dead in ca case of it being a pandemic? And versus, say, like, a uh, Uh, tornado when help may not be coming for quite a while. Uh, thank you. You know what Susie reminds me of? Susie's called several times, and Susie reminds me of... The little English teacher that you might have had in high school like I did, I had one named Miss Silberling, and she was this little bitty lady with this little bitty soft voice, and uh, she's probably still teaching. She was a fat, this is why I remember her, she was a fabulous English literature teacher. That's what she was, not really an English grammar teacher, but a literature teacher that you would, you know, you'd read a play or you'd read a story and you'd have these basic questions, and then she would just turn around and go, and what do you think that means in like one of the most complicated complex parts of the plot and you're like huh that's how that's how Susie's questions are they're all soft and diminutive but they're never easy and I love them for that so thanks for the question here's the reality in a let's say it's a massive massive uh, situation where we have literally the streets full of bodies it's a nightmarish problem And there is no easy answer, and the only thing you can really do is hopefully you have heavy equipment with some um, capability of running, and you start digging holes and pushing bodies in and covering them up. That is the only thing you can do. And in situations in the past, like wars and all, where there's been that type of casualty, that's what's been done. And that's really the only thing you can do, because even cremation at that point becomes unreasonable unless you kind of assembly line do it the way that the, the Nazis did, which we hope we never see anything like that again. God forbid, and God forbid it could happen. Um, if you are in a situation, though, where you have the, the, the system has failed and you just don't have access to a typical funeral home, if you put more than three foot of dirt on top of somebody and bury them in the, in the ground, problem's gone. 
Um, I think the modern funeral industry is the biggest scam on the planet other than the college education loan system. Uh, there was a time in, in America where when you died and you lived on a little family farm, uh, they might have had a local stone cutter make a headstone for you so the family could remember you. The family gathered around, local people gathered around, preacher came over. Uh, your sons or your, your, your grandsons or your brother, your son-in-laws went and got the shovels out and dug a hole. Uh, they laid you to rest in a pine box or just nothing. Uh, they put the dirt back on top of you, and every family had a little cemetery, uh, either very close, like a little town cemetery run that way, or one in their own, on their own property where they laid mom and dad together to rest. And that made the, the farm something nobody ever wanted to walk away from. And guess what? It didn't kill anybody. Nobody died. Disease didn't spread. Um, the, the concept that the human body in decomposition is much different than anybody in discomposition is, uh, is nonsense. Uh, yeah, I want you to think about this every day. Every day, deer, uh, and other large game all across America fall over and die. Decomposers do their job, uh, and, uh, and, and uh, you know, things like vultures and scavengers do their job, and it goes away. Human remains are no different. Uh, there's places out in Africa where when you die, they just drag you out in the bush and leave you there and let nature take its course. Problem with that is it teaches predators to feed on humans, which is one of the first reasons we started burying folks in the first place. It wasn't so much a sanitation issue. It was, don't want to train the lions, tigers, and bears to eat us. So the reality is in a, a you know kind of the one-off situation where you have to deal with the dead, burying takes care of it. If you have the, and I know you live in kind of a residential area, so this wouldn't work, but if you have the space, individual cremation takes care of it. Uh, it's just a fact. And the funeral industry is ridiculous. And I'll tell you that's true because in nations all over the world, including some with some pretty modern infrastructure, it's still done the way we used to do it here. There's no embalming. There's no laying on the table for a week. Costa Rica, when you die in Costa Rica, a local TV station runs your name across the TV about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and that way anybody local that knows who you are can come to your funeral. And by about 6 o'clock that afternoon, somewhere on a hillside, there's a hole in the ground, you're in it. Uh, you haven't been prepped in any way other than maybe put a different suit of clothes on you if people want to see you. And uh, they put you in the ground and they bury you and it's done. And that's and there's no vault and there's no concrete and there's none of all the bodily fluid collection and toxic stuff pumped into you. You're just buried and gone and gone away. So uh, there's your answer. Now again, if we end up with the mass casualty scenario, we have tremendous potential for additional spread of disease uh, and things like that. And some kind of a, a mechanized method of, of uh, elimination has to take place. Best answer I can give you to it. Thanks for making me think. Uh, let's, that's why we have 8665-THINK. It's not just for you guys to think. It's to make me think, too. Uh, thanks for that question, Susie. And let's go ahead and take another one. Hey, Jack, quick question about charcoal, charcoal briquettes that you buy in the store. Basically, I live in an apartment complex where we have uh, electric stoves and electric ovens, and we have to pay the electric bill ourselves. Meanwhile, they for the summer, they're installing outdoor barbecue racks where you can use charcoal. So I'm thinking, if you bought a whole bunch of charcoal, would that be cheaper than just using the electric? And how long does charcoal store for store? Because we have a, a storage unit that comes with the rent of the apartment, and we can just stack up a bunch of 20-pound bags of charcoal briquettes in the storage unit. So what do you think about long-term storage of, char of bags of charcoal? Thanks. Well, let's start with the economics of it. Cooking with charcoal is really not any kind of a money-saving proposition over cooking with an electric stove. Uh, it's good emergency prep. It makes food taste a hell of a lot better, and I do it all the time because I'm willing to pay even a little bit more than the electric bill uh, to cook. The only way you're going to make charcoal a money-saving proposition is shop sales, stock up on sales when they happen, combine it with coupons, and if you can push down the price and be an extreme couponer in the charcoal world, maybe you can save some money over electricity. But at best, in general, it's a break-even scenario, with one exception. When you do it in the summertime, all that heat isn't going into your house, and now you're not using additional energy to cool it down. So in the summer, it could probably save you a little bit of money. On the storage question, storage of charcoal is only limited by one thing, 
And I'll seriously mean only one thing. Well, I guess two. One, if it catches on fire and burns up, it's gone. So it can be a fire hazard. You have to make sure that you, you don't store any, any kind of flammables. So store your starting fluid somewhere else. I would not recommend storing large amounts of, uh, like match light style, the stuff that's already impregnated with a, with a, a, a flame agent. Uh, I would store, you know, just plain dry charcoal if you're going to do that and store your starter fluid or whatever you're using for starting somewhere else. I generally use a starter chimney, which just requires a little bit of newspaper in the bottom and no fluid at all. I, I get better results that way. I don't get any fluid flavor, but you know, fluid works. There's a reason it's out there. Uh, and it serves a lot of other purposes as well. Just don't store it with your charcoal in those buildings. Um, but as long as you keep it dry, uh, it'll outlast you. So you don't have to worry about, you know, your charcoal expiring on you at all. The fact that they're putting those grills in so you can use them is great. One of the miseries for me when I was an apartment uh, person at one time was that even my little tiny grill that I would try to hide on my balcony, that somebody would always see it and yell, the fire marshal was going to come and tell me I couldn't have a grill uh, on my porch. So the fact you can go out there and grill, that's great. I think grilling is a skill. Uh, that the longer you do, the better you get at it. I think that a lot of people don't cook with a hot enough coal and things like that. So it's something the more you do, the better you'll get. I definitely encourage you to do it. I think it makes sense. But if you're looking at it for straight-up money-saving initially, I think you'll be disappointed. A bag of charcoal can be kind of expensive. People will talk about making your own. If you're living in an apartment, you're not going to be setting up a charcoal uh, manufacturing facility. But shop sales, and understand that when it comes to charcoal bricks, They're all pretty good. Uh, I generally, if I can get a sale price or anything, will buy Kingsford. Uh, I think I get very good results with with uh, Kingsford charcoal. I also like to bring in some additional wood. I like to take some chunks of hickory or, or mesquite, mix those in with my coals. That gives me some additional heat. I get spots on the fire that are burning the wood that are a little bit hotter. And if I want to sear and I'm not getting enough searing from the coals, I can move them over there, things like that. Um, but it's a good, it's a good skill to learn, and uh, it's a good thing to store. Just you're not going to get a straight-up money savings, and your storage is infinite on that as long as you keep it dry or don't cause a fire hazard and burn up the storage facility and, and the charcoal itself. Let's go ahead and take another one. Hey, Jack. This is a low-cost alternative to pepper spray that I was wanted to get your opinion on. Um, I've heard that wasp spray makes a great alternative to pepper spray. It's easy to come by, cheap, lasts a long time, has a great range. Um, I've read about this in a few different things, and I've also heard it recommended by local law enforcement. Just uh, wanted to get your suggestions on it or your, your thoughts on it. Thanks. This is one that keeps coming back over and over again, and it's not true and it's not untrue at the same time. First of all, generally speaking, law enforcement are not recommending this unless um, they're misinformed by the same um, rumor mill uh, that, that, that started by saying it was recommended by law enforcement. You can look this one up on Snopes if you want to. Here's the reality. If you spray somebody in the face with a stream of wasp spray, uh, it will incapacitate them. It will, uh, it will probably blind them temporarily and may blind them significantly for a long period of time. Uh, if you just happen to have some wasp spray around and somebody's trying to get in your door and you use it, it's basic self-defense. It's no different than uh, hitting them in the face with a shovel or shooting them with a gun in the crotch. I mean, it's, it's you used what you had. The problem is if you take wasp spray, and you got to think about the litigious society that we live in, and if you turn it around, you will see a notice on it. You will see that it is a violation of federal law to use this product uh, other than in accordance with uh, its recommended use. So on that can, nowhere will you see a recommended use to spray thieves in the face when they break in your house. So the caveat, and I, I have no sympathy for the person that breaks in your house or tries to mug you and gets shot in the face with wasp spray. I think, you know, hey, man, sorry about your luck. Um, but if you choose to do this, then what I suggest you do is that you make sure that you're prepared with your story that he tried to get in my house and it just happened to be there. If you say, I keep it there to do this, the wrong DA may come after you and it may cause a shit storm and you may eventually beat it, but it may cause misery for you you don't want. My personal opinion is that, um, that pepper spray is not expensive in the first place and it works really good and a can of wasp spray is really large. 
So wasp spray is not something you're going to carry in your purse, ladies or gentlemen. You're going to carry on your keychain or something the way I carry uh, my pepper spray. It's something you're going to keep in, in the house or something like that. So why not just use what's what, what's you know intended for that purpose anyway? Cold Steel makes a brand of pepper spray called Inferno. It is the best thing I have found. It comes out as a foam, but it immediately turns to a liquid. That gives you the advantages of both. It sticks to the person. It doesn't disperse, you know, the way a liquid can or an aerosol can, where it, it really hits you hard too. But as soon as it hits their face, it liquefies. It's made up with a blend of the capsaicin that's in common pepper spray and black pepper. The black pepper causes an immediate Uh, sneeze reaction. If you think about when you sneeze, there's a lot of out, but before the out comes what? The in. So when you do that, <gasps> before you sneeze, into your throat and into your nose goes what? That hot pepper. Um, and I know there's people that say, well, there was this Navy SEAL guy that, you know, he ate it on his salad or whatever. You know what? There was a, I, there's a guy I know for a fact in Jacksonville, Florida in about 1983 that tried to rob a convenience store just down the road from where my dad's gas station was. The owner had a double-barrel shotgun and pulled it out and shot the man in the side of the head, exposing his brain, literally blew half his face and a quarter of his head off. And that person turned around and in blind instinct ran three blocks and collapsed over and died. Instead of running, if that person was armed, they could have pulled the trigger a lot of times in the time it takes to run three blocks. But does that mean that a double-barrel shotgun to the head is not an effective method of defense? No. So because there's this one Navy SEAL that could eat it or whatever, you know, that doesn't mean that this stuff doesn't work. It is effective. And I want to see all these people that say, I know someone, I want to see them get in touch with Lynn over at Cold Steel and go on in there and let Cold Steel videotape you getting sprayed in the face with Inferno, and then let's see you function for more than about 10 seconds after that happens. And when I see it, I'll believe it. I hear all these rumors, and everybody knows a guy that knows a guy. I haven't seen it happen a lot. I have seen, uh, I've gotten firsthand uh, reports from law enforcement officers. A guy that's coked up or something uh, takes a lot longer to subdue. But I also know that those same officers have said they've had a 99% success ratio using it as a control mechanism. Uh, got an interesting call about that coming up, too. Uh, let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack. It's Patrick from Alexandria, Ontario. I was just wondering, I have a fairly large urban property in mostly shade. I was wondering, what can I grow that doesn't need much sunlight? Like herbs, fruit-bearing, anything. Okay? You have a great one. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye. Well, if you lived in the tropics in the shade, there's all kinds of stuff that'll 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 work for you. That's designed to grow in those filtered shade in the tropics. Uh, but you live in Ontario, so it gets cold. So we got to find something to grow up there. The first thing I'd recommend is: is there an area that you can create some sun? So can you do some pruning? Maybe it's removing one, not all your trees or something like that, so that you can grow some things that require some sunlight because that'll open things up. That'll open us up to peas and beans and things like that. They can get by with four hours or so of sun a day or something like that. Now, the things that will actually grow in the shade for you, if it's like dark, complete, total shade where there's nothing getting through, the answer is mushrooms and, and not much else. If it's shade with some mottling and some light gets through here and there and all, some of the things that may work for you are goji berry and currant as perennials. Those both will do well. Current actually does quite well in the shade. I've heard some people that have had some success growing gooseberry in some shady environments. In your summer, which isn't long, you may be able to grow some lettuces and spinaches because it's cooler up there than it is down this way in uh, some kind of you know shade. As long as some light's getting through, um, but it's, it's just not the way things work. If you look at your yard, odds are you don't have a lot of grass growing or anything else there. Um, and if you do, if you have clumps where grass grows, uh, kill the grass, and that's where to plant your things and grow some greens and things like that. So look at your land and let your land tell you here's where your most solar exposure is. Because if you have some patches of, of native grasses that keep coming up on their own, 
That's the area that's getting enough sun to support some basic green things. Things that generally fruit or, you know, like tomatoes and eggplants and peppers and things like that have much higher sun requirements. Things that are heavy flowers, uh, you know, like, uh, like marigold and a lot of different annual flowers that you put out there for insect attraction and for just aesthetics generally have fairly high solar requirements as well. So, Those are some things you can do. One thing you can definitely always do, find in the shadiest, moistest area, start cutting up some hardwood logs, get some dowels, and start farming mushrooms. That, that's, you know, that's how we take the, the disadvantage and turn it into an advantage. But you're never going to have the big, typical um, urban garden if you have all that shade. So you have to make a decision. If you want to grow more than the kind of things I'm talking about, you've got to sacrifice some shade in some area. And that may not all be bad. There may be one or two, if you have a large property with lots of trees, there may be, if you look strategically, and this is the best way to do this, draw a map of your property, track your sun, determine your summer and winter sun, consider where the sun is during your growing season, which is somewhat shortened, and remove trees that will provide good solar exposure to the area you want to grow during your growing season and leave everything else. If some of those are hardwoods, now you have a source of great hardwood logs. Now take those over to your shaded area and set up your mushroom growing environment. And you can do a lot of different varieties of mushrooms. You can control when they fruit. Um, you know, by certain, certain mushroom varieties, uh, like shiitakes, for instance. Generally, when you want those logs to fruit, you soak them for a number of days after they've been inoculated long enough. And then after that, they'll fruit. So you can stage, uh, succession harvesting or create one big harvester, do anything anything you like there. But that's it's a limitation that you have for yourself there. And pretty much the only thing you're going to be able to get to grow uh, that I know consistently would be currants, maybe gooseberries, and some of your greens in the areas where you might see some native grasses popping up. Best I can do for you, man. Uh, you, otherwise, you're going to have to saw a tree or two. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Chris in Wisconsin. I'll apologize in advance if you've already answered this question. While watching uh, my newly installed rain barrel fill up, I noticed that the water is quite dark and blackish. Presumably this is coming from the tar holding the uh, roofing together or the shingles together. wonder if you had any thoughts on that. I know somebody asked you a question recently about filtering acid rain. Um, anyhow, love to hear your thoughts. Thanks a lot, man. Talk to you later. Bye. Well, this gentleman actually called back and said, don't worry about my question because I went out in the morning and the water wasn't black. It was kind of a brownish color. It's probably just some detritus and stuff like that off the roof. Uh, that watching it at night made it look that way. But I wanted to answer the question anyway because there is a concern that the water that comes off a roof initially can take things like bird feces and stuff like that with it uh, and other detritus and maybe... You know, if the roof sits there in the sun, some of the tar comes out of the shingles and stuff like that and becomes a, a petroleum residue and it can be washed off. The thing is that stuff comes in the first flow. So there's uh, a lot of things that can be done with that. Usually uh, what this is referred to by, you know, the pros that do this stuff is uh, a foul flush system. And there's a lot of ways to do it. I'll give you a, uh, a website uh, with some ideas on how to do it. But there's some pretty simple ways to do it. Um, you can basically create a system that's a, you know, maybe a five gallon bucket as your rain catch and that once that fills, it has a counterweight system where it drops down and diverts into, uh, your main storage barrel so that it initially, um, it, it, you know, it doesn't dump it in there at first. You just always the old manual way. You have your downpipe with a 90 degree elbow on it, uh, that's not, uh, what would you call it, um, Uh, glued on. It's just forced on and held by forces. There's no real pressure because it just drops out. Uh, it'll stay there for you. And when it starts raining, you always keep it set to where it just diverts the water to where it would normally go to the ground. And about, you know, five, ten minutes into the storm, you walk out or may reach out from under the even if you don't want to get wet. Turn that 90 degree el elbow down so that it starts going into whatever you're collecting your water with. So it can be set up to be automatic or you can manually control it. It just requires that extra step. And that will help with, you know, eliminating some of the things that are on your roof. 
I don't worry about the bird crapping on the roof. I don't worry about the squirrel crapping on the roof because the bird and the squirrel crap in your garden anyway, for God's sakes. Uh, and it's up there and it's baked on the roof and it, you know, it, it's dried out and it's not festering like, you know, a steaming pile of dog dew does in the, in the yard or what have, have you. So I'm not real concerned about any of this for irrigation purposes. If this water is being reserved, And something like a, a cistern underground for use in the house. I definitely want to do uh, a foul flush system prior to that water going down there. And I'd want to filter it as well. Uh, so that would take care of that uh, if we're using it for use inside the home for actual consumption. Uh, so there you go. That's the best answer I can give you on that. Uh, and if it's brown, it may be that there was a lot of stuff up there, and you may want to consider some kind of foul flush system. But for irrigation purposes, I wouldn't sweat it too much. Let's go ahead and take another call. Thanks for that one. It was a great one. Yes, Jack. This is John from uh, northern New York. I'm calling on your thoughts about long-term storage for dog food like in the five-gallon uh, five pails with the Milo bags and oxygen absorbers. I'd like to know if that's a doable thing uh, that can be done, and uh, I value your uh, information. Thank you. When it comes to food of any kind, whether it's for dogs or people, your two biggest enemies are oxygen and light. So if you take dog food, you put it in a five-gallon bucket in a Mylar bag, you put O2 absorbers in it, and you reduce the oxygen exposure and you reduce the light exposure to it, it will last longer. One thing about dog food, though, it's greasy. It's got a high-fat, high-oil content. So you're not going to pull that off with like a 10-year storage program or something. If you have a dog that's eating the dog food, eat what you store, store what you eat can work very well. You could put away uh, as many, you know, hundreds of pounds as you want, and but you would just have to continuously be rotating that. It's never going to store like macaroni or beans or anything like that. It's just not going to happen. Uh, because of that higher oil content. If you look at the fat content that you're dealing with there, it's quite significant. Over time, oils become rancid. That's one of the things that limits the storage of nuts. But I would reckon, I, I would guess you could probably easily extend it out to a couple of years. Uh, but anything beyond that, you know, it's gonna, and, and it was, it would still be edible, and your dog may still eat it if he gets hungry enough. But I know for a fact that when, uh, Even if the dog doesn't eat, we put our dry dog food out for a dog. If he doesn't eat it for a couple days because he just doesn't feel like it or maybe we gave him a couple extra biscuits or something, we got to throw some fresh stuff in there or he won't eat it. It gets an off flavor. We've had bags that maybe we got we left out up here in Arkansas for Max or Blackie and uh, forgot to wrap them up real, real good before we left and maybe we were gone for a month before we came back and we come back they just won't eat it. Uh, like I said, they get hungry enough, they'll eat it. But you don't want to eat rancid food. You don't want to feed any kind of rancid uh, oils to your animals either. Uh, in a shit at the fan scenario, you do what you got to do. But uh, but there you go. That, that that's what it comes down to. You can extor extend the life of any food product that's uh, a non-perishable, non-requiring of refrigeration by reducing uh, light and oxygen. No matter what it is, doesn't matter for you, for a dog, or for a goldfish. Uh, but in the end, the higher the oil content the more restricted and limited your long-term storage capability will be. Let's go ahead and take another question. John, thanks for that one. Hey, Jack. This is Jeff from St. Louis, Lost Airplane on the forum. I'm 51 years old, and I've been a policeman since I was 22 years old, off and on, man and boy. And I finally decided to get trained and certified to carry pepper spray after all these years. And I have to say, when you talk about pepper spray, it's effectiveness and that it's a good defensive weapon. I knew that was true just from, you know, seeing it used and knowing what I know. But to get pepper spray trained, you have to get shot with it. And so I got shot with it today. And while it's still fresh in my mind and my eyes look like I've been swimming in a highly chlorinated pool for the last two weeks straight, I have to tell you, pepper spray is quite the deterrent. And it can incapacitate someone to the point where they are no longer a threat to you. Um, I will attest to that personally. I couldn't do that before, but I can now. And I'm not suggesting that any of your listeners to carry pepper spray and believe that it will do the job that they need to spray themselves with it because I wouldn't recommend it. It hurts, but it doesn't do any permanent damage. So if you really want to know, I guess you can. Uh, trust me, it works. Um, talk to you later. Uh, well, Jeff, thank you. Thank you very, very much for sharing that with us, and um, I appreciate it, and I appreciate your service as a law enforcement officer as well. 
And I told you guys earlier when we had the wasp spray question that somebody would uh, answer the effectiveness of pepper spray for me. And it's funny. I mean, all I do with these questions, folks, is I go back to the last you know one I answered that I've archived off, and I just start going forward, and I take them in the order they come in. And these only came in a few questions apart. Uh, so uh, it's funny how you guys always seem to be in synergy, and when one question will complement the other, and I thought, think that happened here. Uh, you know, I've kind of said this over and over and over again. Hell yeah, it's effective. And hell yeah, maybe one guy at one point at one time, you know, uh, stood up to it. But it doesn't happen often. If you like to watch law enforcement shows, and I do, I like to watch this new show that's out. It's not the you know, cops or whatever. It's called Jail. And it's, uh, you know, Jail is a place where you go maybe for a night or maybe for six months uh, while you're either awaiting trial or if you've been convicted of some minor, you know, county level or infraction or something like that. It's not the prison system. And that means we get a mix of people in there that are hardcore criminals and people that are in there because they were drunk and wandering around the streets and wouldn't shut up when they were told to or go home when they were told to or were a danger to themselves and really aren't in that much trouble and didn't really cause that much problem. Maybe they're brought in just to protect themselves from themselves. Uh, but you get all different kinds in there, and a lot of times you get somebody in there that's just basically going to argue with the, uh, the, the the sheriff or, or the jailer or whoever it is in that local uh, establishment that runs the jail. And, of course, they're not a judge. They're just there to process you through, and you get to tell your story to a judge, and they want to fight. And all I can tell you is I've watched hundreds and hundreds of episodes of stuff like this, and every time they get someone that's in a, in, in a situation where they're going to fight, and they hit them with a little bit of pepper spray, uh, fight ends. And they have to subdue that person, right? They have to, they have to c contain that person and maybe put them in a restraint or something like that. If you're in a defensive situation, all you have to do is buy yourself time to extract yourself from the situation. So I think a lot of these stories about people that, you know, were still difficult to subdue after being pepper sprayed don't even apply to the civilian because you shouldn't be subduing anyone. You should be removing yourself from the area and removing those with you from the area and reporting the incident. Um, it's not about being a badass. It's not about making a citizen's arrest. It's about diffusing a potentially violent and potentially lethal situation as quickly as possible without resulting a lethal force because in the individual situation, your judgment says that it's not called for. Great call. Great synergy in the audience. Let's go ahead and take another question again. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for standing there and getting sprayed in the face. It's a hard thing to do. I've never been purposely sprayed in the face with pepper spray. It's any kind of training or anything. I really don't look forward to it if I ever end up deciding that it's necessary for something. I also am not recommending you do it to yourself. Um, I've seen, like, my wife accidentally discharged it. It didn't even go on her, but it was in a breeze, and she got a little bit of it. Uh, she was sneezing blood for a while after, so I really, really don't recommend it. And when it's done in law enforcement facilities, folks, there's EMTs and stuff like that on staff. If you want to really see it in action, you can get a DVD from Cold Steel called Absolute Proof, and there's a whole section on their Inferno product where they have people, they even have big, tough guys come in, stand there and get sprayed in the face. And uh, you can really see what happens. And it's uh, it's not pretty. One guy was even able to throw a couple punches. Um, but that was it. And the guy held up some hand packs. He had two, and he was done. Um, it's effective, folks. It works. If it didn't, it wouldn't be on the belt of every law enforcement officer in our nation. Let's go ahead and uh, take another call. Jack, hey, it's a survivor on the forums. Uh, it just occurred to me, I was up here driving in Maine and uh, late at night, I was kind of tired and I come across a, on a back road, a, a beaver who'd been hit by a car and he was like 40 pounds or so and uh wasn't anything I could do but it occurred to me if I had a gun or something I could have shot him in the head and put him out of his misery but um, I just wondered, you know, maybe that's illegal if you did that or it depends on what state so I don't know and I, I have... Last year, I saw a small uh, a small moose in a similar situation. He'd been hit by a car, and he walked, but he was still plenty alive. And, uh, you know, so, you know, it, 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 there's a question for you anyways. So, okay, thanks. Well, I'm not sure exactly what the question is. It was more of a story uh, than a question. But I guess the question is, you know, what are, what are my thoughts on the, the scenario as a whole? Well, Let's look at it this way. If you come across an animal that's been injured and is suffering and really needs to be put down, it may in fact be illegal, and it may in fact be something you're not supposed to do, and you may in fact euthanize it anyway. You're going to have to make the call. 
What are the odds that you're going to be seen doing this? What are the odds that somebody's going to show up? And uh, is it worth the risk to do the right thing for the animal in question? You also have to look at it and go, could this animal survive? The, the right answer might be you call local authorities and say there's an animal down on the road here. And an officer may come out and euthanize it or may send animal rescue out for it depending on the species and depending on the degree of the injury. So the, the problem is that if you take the step of euthanization and no one else is there to verify it, you, you are, it's your word that the animal was not capable of recovery. If you then take that carcass and use it for the meat that it provides, you're in a total different scenario. Uh, and, and laws differ state by state. So you have to state, check with your state authorities, your state game department, on, on what is proper protocol for this. Uh, for instance, in, in Pennsylvania, proper protocol, and I know this because we used to look for down deer uh, on the roads and the highway, is you, you, you stay with the animal, and this is when the animal's dead. It's been hit, it's dead, but it's recoverable. And that means that it's, it's, it's still fresh, it's not bloated, maybe it's still warm. Uh, you make a phone call and say, hey, uh, we, there's a down deer here, here's my location, here's my name, here's my driver's license number, uh, I would like to, uh, to recover this animal, I believe that it's recoverable. And that means that portions of the meat are eligible for use. In Pennsylvania, they're going to take the hide. Uh, they're supposed to anyway. Um, and then they'll tell you we're going to send a, a, an enforcement officer out there to issue you a permit for the animal. He'll come out, he'll look at it, he'll verify there's not a 306 hole through the shoulders, that it was indeed hit by a vehicle, and uh, give you a permit for the animal. One time I did this. I was on leave from the Army. Me and a friend were out. It was spring. You don't usually see him. Here's a young a year doe, so you know she's not got a fawn with her. Um, you know, she's about 80 pounds, maybe 70 pounds, laying on the ground, the blood still flowing out of the eye, completely stone dead, had been hit in the hindquarters, so you know that's probably at least the side of impact is, is, is gone as far as bloodshot, with a lot of good meat on it, and I hadn't had deer meat in three years. And, uh, other than just coming home and having some that my uncle shot or something, because I'd been served in Panama. And, uh, so we call the game department, do exactly what we're supposed to do. Um, the lady on the phone talks to the, 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 game, the game warden for the area. He basically says, tell them to go ahead and take the deer. And, uh, you know, give them a, a number and report it in with our office. So we take the deer home. And we don't try to conceal what we're doing at all. We carry the deer right out of the car, right into the, the, the basement. And we go hang the deer up and we start processing the deer. And uh, one of the neighbors saw it and assumed that we had posted deer, some rat, some rat fink, uh, with nothing better than to do. I still don't know who it is. I'd like to go smack him in the face. Uh, called the local game department, and and uh, they sent out a, a, a game a game warden who obviously wasn't in the same department as the one that had given the okay to take the deer because we were 25 miles away out in the farm area when we picked the deer up. So when he shows up, I'm literally walking up out of the sunken basement. I've got two front legs in my hand, and because of how bloodshot some of the meat is, I've got blood up to my elbows on both sides, and I'm taking it up into uh, kind of our, our shed that has an old refrigerator to let this meat chill because it's still warm, and it's, you know, it's better to cut it once the meat's been chilled a little bit in an icebox. So he says, do you have a deer here? Right. I mean, it's kind of comical. Like, I'm going to say no. So I tell him yes. I tell him what's going on. And he's kind of real skeptical about the whole situation. I said, can I go put these down, wash my hands up, and we'll verify what we did. So he makes a call to his office. They don't know anything about it. We give them a the number uh, that we called. They, they get in touch with that department. And everything's copacetic. And I made a point of having him come out and uh, issue me uh, the permit in my front yard, shake his hand when he left so that the nosy neighbor could see that they uh, had, uh, had in fact, not really gotten anybody in any kind of trouble because he wasn't leaving with a deer. He wanted to hide. We'd already pitched it over the bank. He wanted to inspect the car because we had pretty much already had it quartered. He was a nice guy, but it could have went wrong. And we did everything we were supposed to. So what I'm trying to get across to you is in all these situations, there's risk. And you have to assess the risk. And is it worth the risk for you? My general feeling is if I'm out kind of on a deserted road and there's nobody around and a gunshot's not that out of the way and there's an animal that I believe needs to be euthanized, I'm probably going to euthanize it. I'm probably also going to leave it lay. I really am. I'm probably not going to take it with me. I may drag it off the road a bit so that it's not a problem, but I'm a big believer in that no creature should suffer. Uh, but that's just my thoughts. You do need to find out what your local laws are before doing any of this. So if you're taking a risk by doing what you believe is the noble right thing to do, you know the risk and you know how to mitigate it for yourself. 
I'll also tell you, though, that if your state makes allowances for recovery and there's a young moose or a deer or an elk or something like that that's been injured or killed on the road and you can recover it, there's no reason to let that meat go to waste. Uh, we put a lot of deer meat in the freezer by picking up road kills. I never felt bad about it. I ain't like picking up a squirrel that's been flattened out there and is mushed or anything. Uh, a lot of times these deers are hitting the front. That's what kills them on impact. And the back strap all the way down, the back legs and everything, that meat is just as good as if you'd harvested the deer yourself. Let's go ahead and take another call. Thanks for calling in, Survivor. Hi, Jack. Great show. I have three uh, concise questions with possibly very long answers. First one is, uh, what are your thoughts on getting into hunting um, when you've never done it before, you have no one in your family or friends do it, uh, but you're really interested in doing it? Second, um, I want to know if you could address... Um, medical school loans as opposed to just college um, college loans you know where typical college loan is thirty to fifty thousand dollars maybe up to a hundred thousand dollars where I'm in two hundred and seventy five thousand dollars in debt that I have to start paying back in one month from now uh, so I'd like your input on that and last I know you talked about it before uh, briefly but I was curious about item longevity such as batteries uh, ammunition food supplies just pretty much everything and anything that you want to save for long-term um, beyond um, maybe what the manufacturers, uh, you know, give for their expiration dates. Like, how long does medication last uh, past recommended use? So I'd appreciate uh, your advice on that as well. Uh, thanks a lot. I hope to hear back from you. Bye. Yeah, you kind of cheated with three questions there all rolled up in one. I'm going to try to do them in brief uh, for you uh, and go ahead and do that anyway. I should have just made you call back or split them up into three myself with editing or something. But I want to try to do this for you. So first of all, on the getting started hunting, I've done some shows on that. Maybe I'll do a show that's dedicated to the new hunter that's in your situation. Just don't have anybody to help out. But a mentor is invaluable, so I would seek a mentor. I would even go as far as maybe placing an advertisement on Craigslist or in the paper, you know, saying I'm seeking someone to mentor me and start me out hunting. I'm a, you know, an adult. I've taken the safety course. Uh, I've shot all my life or whatever it is. I tell your story. Um, somebody might reach out to you. It's a long shot, but who knows? Somebody that's experienced in the area is going to really help you out a lot. And having, you know, uncles and a father and a grandfather that had always hunted the area where I grew up was such an advantage for me. Um, I, I would have hated to see how much slower my progression as a hunter would have been without that training. What I'll also say is if you can find local gun clubs and uh, sporting clubs and things like that, gun ranges. When you go to gun ranges, talk to the people around you. I've always found everybody to be friendly at gun ranges. The guy sitting there, you know, with uh, the AK rattling off rounds and spraying and praying uh, as, best as, he can, as best as he can with the range rules or something, probably not the guy. But go over to where people are zeroing in their deer rifles and stuff and talk to them, say you're trying to get, you know, you talk to people, you network, you may find that there are people out there. Join lists online, you know, Twitter and Facebook. Tell people, I'm looking for someone to go hunting with in my area. Uh, or somewhere near the area. You may find people that are experienced hunters, but maybe they've lost their, their hunting partner. Somebody that they've hunted with for years moved or something may reach out to you. If you don't, you know what? There's no problem with the Nike Creed. Go get training. Know what's safe. Know what's legal. Find public lands. Find a place you can lease and go out and try. You'll screw so much up, it'll be unbelievable. You will be a complete screw-up. You'll do dumb things, but read books, watch documentaries, uh, watch the hunting shows. Uh, the, some the, the hunting shows can be misleading because they, they have like... Three weeks condensed into 30 minutes. You don't see all the misery the guy went through. They're also generally hunting private lands and stuff like that. Some of the hunting shows, though, these guys are out there hunting public lands. They're actually telling you what you do. Check out YouTube videos. I'm going to try to do more videos this year on actually how to pattern deer and how to understand them and, and some things like that. Get some good books on the subject and do the best you can. And keep looking for some mentors and some hunting partners because that will help you a lot. And if you turn out, you find somebody that would be a mentor to you and it turns out they seem incompetent, uh, if you're new and you think they're incompetent, they probably are, look for somebody else. I know guys that, they're long-term hunters, but they've hunted, you know, I know guys in Pennsylvania hunted 25 to 25 years. I've never seen a deer when I'm on a deer stand. Folks, they're doing something wrong. There's over a million deer in Pennsylvania. If you ain't seen a deer in 25 years of hunting, you're doing something wrong. You're not the guy I want to be hunting with. In fact, I want to know where you are and I want to pattern 
Saturn wind, and I want to use you as a way to divert deer to me because you're you're sitting up there drinking coffee and smoking a cigarette and listening to a radio or something like that. If you go 25 years without seeing, not not shooting, but not seeing a deer, uh, but that's the best I can do for you on that one. On the next one. I, the next one, what do you do if you're $250,000 in debt from medical school loans? You better be the best damn doctor you can be, and you better set up a practice, and you better start making some money. Uh, take uh, a, a staff job initially. Uh, they pay pretty decent. Start making your minimal payments on that. Uh, work to try to set up a practice. Uh, even when you have a practice, pull emergency room hours and things like that. Make as much money as you can and get rid of that quarter million dollars in debt as quickly as possible. And that's the only answer I got for for you. Um, I really think that people that are going to go a quarter million dollars in a debt as a doctor um, need to really be thinking about what they're doing. And this is why I think the general practitioner is becoming extinct, because when you come out of, out of school with that kind of debt behind you, you want to be cutting into somebody's brain and charging like $9,000 an hour to get that debt paid off. And that's why people are going into more specialized medicine, surgical medicine, emergency medicine, things like that. And the general practitioner who has to pay almost as much money or more, uh, depending on where they go to school, is, um, is you know, becoming, you know, imported doctors from India and Pakistan uh, because they can get their degree a lot more affordably. Uh, so, I mean, that's the only answer I have for you on that one. Now, on the next one, on longevity, I'm going to tell you this. Every expiration date is there for cover my ass as a manufacturer or a producer. Um, there is no way that when you look at a box of pasta and it says it's good until January 12, 2012, that on January 12, 2000, uh, or January 13, 2012, that it's that much different than it was the day before. Uh, it all goes down to how it's stored and how it's taken care of and what is the consequences to you of the expiration date. Certain medications, for instance, if you have a lot of medications, if they're past the expiration date and they were stored properly, they're still pretty good. Uh, if they have started to dec decline in, in performance, the only thing you have is they're less effective. There's no danger. Certain antibiotics, specifically things in the tetracycline uh, family, can become dangerous after their expiration date if they're not stored properly. So you have to sort that one out individually with medications. But things like ibuprofen, Tylenol, and things like that, all that ha happens is their efficacy declines over time. So it's not going to hurt you to take it. The, like I said earlier with the dog food question, the enemies to all things storable are heat, light, and oxygen. I left out heat in the last one. I should have said that. Heat, light, and oxygen. So if you can keep stable temperatures, low oxygen, and low light environments, anything's going to store longer. Some things are infinite in storage almost no matter what you do unless you burn them, melt them, or chemically contaminate them. Disposable razors, knife blades, light bulbs, for they don't go bad. Uh, ammunition doesn't go bad. Uh, I don't know where this myth came from. Somebody was saying recently, well, the new primers don't last as long as the old primers. That's a conspiracy to make the ammunition not storable. Man, I don't know where the hell you're getting at. A primer's been built the same way for decades. I have ammunition in my footlocker that's from the Turkish military that was manufactured in the 1930s. It's got corrosive primers in it. Uh, so I only use it in this old beat-up Turkish Mauser that I bought the ammo for in the first place. It has not been taken good care of. Some some of it you you, you have to check it. Some of the slugs will literally pull out. Uh, some of the brass has like you know markings on it where it's it can, you know like had some corrosion and stuff. You throw those ones out. Uh, it has not been well taken care of. I got it in bandoliers of eighty, and I think I paid like four bucks for it or something like that because it's cheap surplus ammo. Um, and it's got you know this old decrepit bandoliers that it's in on these stripper clips. Except for the ones that I don't want to fire because I don't think they're safe. Every dadgum one of them I've stuffed in that old Mauser has fired. So ammunition, again, if you keep it in a temperature-controlled environment, it'll extend its longevity, but it's pretty dadgum longevity-prone uh, in the first place. Uh, foods, again, it's all about light, heat, oxygen. Everything you can do to decrease that will extend it. The only way you really know, though, It's to talk to people who have done it and do it yourself and taste it and see when does the taste begin to decline. And then there's certain things, obviously, that, you know, like meats and all that can become contaminated. If you have canned food and that can's not bulged, uh, it's safe to eat. 
but what is the texture? What is the flavor? So start taking some things from your long-term stores that are two years old. Go get a can equivalent to it from off the shelf today. Taste them. Is there a decline? If not, you know that can has two years of longevity. So some of this is trial and error, but you got to be safe. That's the big thing there. Best I can do, did that in eight minutes for three questions. That's about uh, two and a half, two and a quarter minutes, two and a third minutes apiece. Uh, you cheated, but uh, there, there you go. I hope that helps you. Uh, good cheat on that one. If it wasn't, I wouldn't have done them all together for you. Let's go ahead and take one last question. Hey, Jack. This is Kerry from Indiana. I've got a friend who has three acres of rural property. They have some chickens and are going to be getting some guineas to help keep down pests and stuff. But last year they had a lot of fleas, and they don't believe that the chickens were anything but maybe a uh, feeding supply for the fleas. They certainly weren't helping to reduce the fleas. Do you have any ideas on what a person could do to eliminate or at least reduce the fleas on a uh, rural property such as that. I'm sure she would appreciate any help that uh, you could tell us about so that I could help her with it. Thank you very much. I'm not really sure. I know one of the things that a lot of people that are in urban environments and uh, and small rural environments do with their chickens inside their chicken runs is plant some rue. And uh, but it can be toxic at high levels. So you plant it, you put a fencing around it, and the chickens are only allowed to eat little bits of it that stick through. And the combination of them eating it and being there is supposed to help repel fleas. That's like the only arrow in my quiver I have on that one. Uh, I don't know what exactly are a flea's natural predators. So I decided to look that up for you guys. And here's what I found. I found this article on Yardner. Uh, dot com and uh, yardener dot y a r d e n e r dot com. They're mainly talking about dealing with for cats and dogs, but let me read a little bit to you uh, about that with some predatory things and some things that can be done. Uh, our approach to dealing with fleas is to locate those areas in the yard where your dog or cat tends to rest, sleep when outside. So I'd say your livestock, anything that's being bothered by fleas, find those areas. Usually most pets or livestock will use the same areas for relaxing. Those areas are where the concentration of fleas will be located. So these areas become your target, and now you have two choices. Predatory nematodes are effective because they now now the cost is more modest. So predatory nematodes could be one thing that could be, and I probably feed on the flea larva as it's uh, as it's reproducing in the ground. And natural insecticides, preethnerium, which I'm not familiar with, and or neem oil soap will kill fleas, but when used in the limited area, are not having serious negative impact on the beneficial insect population of the entire yard. So preethnerium is something I'm not familiar with. Uh, so I can't personally endorse it, but it's being recommended here. You can look into that. Neem oil, I'm a big fan of neem oil used in controlled areas, just like they're saying. Uh, it generally has a pretty good effect, and it doesn't generally kill on in impact. What it does is it basically is like chemical warfare against uh, a, you know uh, uh, insects, and certain insect species, suckers and chewers generally, uh, what happens is it screws up their mind, and they forget what they are and what they're supposed to do. They forget to fly. They forget to eat. Uh, it, it's kind of like a mind warfare agent, and uh, it's very, very effective. And then continuing on this article, long-term ap approach to controlling fleas. We mentioned above that the three most important natural predators for fleas are ants, spiders, and ground beetles. The problem is most lawns today are mowed too short and are not sufficiently dense to serve as habitat for these three groups of beneficials. In a lawn care section of Yardner's Help, we give you tips on how, over the years, you can create a turf that has been loaded with ants, spiders, and ground beetles. With the population of gunslingers in place, your flea population will almost always be kept in control with no intervention needed by you. So increasing the habitat for ants, spiders, and ground beetles. And I know fire ants can be a problem, uh, but I think we're talking about more of our native species of ants there. So there you go. That's the best I can do, and I'll confess that I use Google to get that answer. Sometimes that's the way to go. I personally think, and I've got a guy coming up for an interview that agrees me with this uh, during my interview blitz, um, that uh, Google has changed the need on, on education. Uh, you can learn a lot in a day of Googling, 
And uh, that's how I got you an answer to that one. It's not generally how I do things, but uh, when I need to rely on it, it's there. Hopefully that gave you a good answer. And if anybody has dealt with fleas on the farm, so to speak, and has other uh, suggestions, please comment in today's show notes. If you have any suggestions or additional information for any of the callers today, please go to the survivalpodcast.com, look up episode 673. If you're listening sometime in the future, just in the t search box, type 673 or whatever episode you want to comment on, and that'll come up. Click on it in the comments section. Leave your comments. That's better than sending me an email. That shares it with the community. I generally respond to all comments if they have additional requests for information from me on the blog. And if I don't get to you because I'm not available, generally somebody else in the audience will do that. That's crowdsourcing. That's why I like to do that. With that, I am going to wrap up today. Remember, if you'd like to be on the show, give me a ring, 866-65-THINK. Right now I'm running almost a month behind. I'm going to do some stuff while I'm away to catch up on the backlog and try to get into my typical thing, which is generally my calls are about two weeks out. Uh, as volume increases, that changes, but maybe we'll start doing like certain shows. We'll just throw one or two calls in to uh, keep up with the backlog. Uh, but I will tell you this. Callers are more likely to get on the show than emailers. I get a lot of calls, but I get a buttload of emails. So you got something you really want to hear. It might take a couple weeks, but the think line is the way to go. And with that, I am going to wrap up today. I love hearing from you guys. Keep the calls. Keep the emails. Keep everything coming. Uh, this has been Jack Spirko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Revolution is you.